Bud Light presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today we salute you, Mr. Losing Locker Room Reporter. Mr. Losing Locker Room Reporter. Wherever a semi-naked man is crying like a schoolgirl because he lost a ball game, you are there. Why did they lose? Because some millionaire dropped the ball. A millionaire who needs a mic stuck in his face on national television. Go ahead. Wear your cashmere blazer to work. No one's going to pour champagne on it where you're going. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, oh bringer of bad news. You're not a big loser. You just interview them. Don't want to talk Bud Light beer and as a for St. Louis, Missouri. One to the dangerous Dante Bichette. Again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kurt chair, shields down, photons up. Yeah. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program. That I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's juicy? What's good, Seamheads? Welcome back to the dojo this week as the 2023 baseball season is on a reset hiatus, I'll call it. With the two respective leaves getting ready to kick off the Midsummer Classic out in Seattle's T-Mobile Park tonight. And, you know, look, I can't speak for anyone else, but this has been one of my favorite MLB first hats of the season in a long, long time. First off, well, the show is blowing up. I want to thank all of you freaks for that. The gap in the metrics from last year on this date to this day, this, uh, to today is you know, a whole other level. And I can never fully encapsulate what this audience means to me. You've proven to me that... Baseball, passionate base, it's still there. You're still hungry for the stories. 
And look, that motivates me week in and week out to get better, keep pushing that bar. So that's first and foremost for me. Secondly, my beloved Orioles. They're very competitive this year as the youth movement is paying off in spades. It's such a joy and pleasure to have a GM again who knows more about baseball than me. I mean, that's the way it should be. There's really only seven teams in the league who appear to be out of the race, and that's the White Sox, Royals, uh, Oakland, the Cards, Nats, Rockies, and I guess to some extent the Tigers, although they're only five and a half games back in the mediocre AL Central, which, you know, they'd have to win that to get a postseason berth. So, like, 70% of the league is relatively in the running, which... That may have an impact on the trade deadline. I'm going to be keeping an eye on that for sure. The new rules and pace of play, which, you know, I told you, it takes me back to when I was a kid and you didn't need pitch clocks to make the game move. I'm I'm loving the new landscape of baseball where youth, athleticism, and speed has finally caught up to the bought and paid for free agent teams. You know who you are. I'm loving Ellie De La Cruz. Last year this time it was O'Neill Cruz capturing my attention. And uh, this year it's De La. What can't this kid do? He stole second, third, and home the other night. Oh, and it was the same inning on two pitches. And the ball sounds like a shotgun blast when he cuts that rock in half. He is out of this world. I got to go home, sit in Camden this year with my beautiful daughter, watch Gunnar Henderson drop dong, beat the Red Sox. So, this first half has been fantastic from my perspective. But while the big leagues have pushed pause on the season, that BKP freight train continues to roll on. Backwards K-Pod is where we collect ballplayers and their stories, but it's also the place where We collect ball yards and their glories, folks. As we have stockpiled a collection of throwback and modern-day cribs, I started with the oldest ballpark, Fenway. And I have worked my way through the years to classics like Wrigley and Dodger Stadium, the Big A. Then into the 90s where we see stadiums like, you know, uh, uh, Sky Dome, Camden Yards, Jacobs Field. You know, these are stadiums taking the fan experience into a whole new era. And we're going to continue that journey this week when we head out to the Rocky Mountains, Denver, Colorado, and take a deep dive into the history of Coors Field, which I'm really looking forward to this. I've never been to Coors. It's always been on my bucket list. It plays well on TV. Those huge power gaps, the high-altitude game where offense reigns supreme and pitching sometimes just becomes a near-comical way to put the ball on the tee for the sluggers. And just this year, it was voted the second-best ball yard in the bigs by Sportsbook MJ behind only Petco Park, and that's based on views, sight lines, accessibility to the stadium, food, atmosphere, etc., etc. So, I'm ready to get after it. Let's load up. Our BKP time channel choo Clear this platform. I'm calling all aboard. I'm going to set our time and destination for October 16th, 1992. Throw a little Ozzy Osbourne on and head over the mountain to Denver, Colorado. Just once, folks. It's, it's, you know, it's October in Colorado. As we will bear witness to the groundbreaking ceremony... For this amazing home for the Rockies baseball team. And while we bend space and time to get to Denver 1992, let's get a little background on how Coors Field came to be. And before we dive into these waters, do you realize that Coors Field, at 30 years old now, is the third oldest National League stadium after Dodger Stadium in Wrigley. In fact, 
Shabazz Ravine is 64 years old, so she is more than twice as old as the third oldest in El Crib. And that should only reinforce the baseball stadium boom that we have seen, you know, in the past 35 years or so. And when we see crazier and more fantastical cribs being built 100 years from now, well, at least our ancestors will, this will be looked at historically as the amazing retro era of the 1990s and 2000s. Much the same way we admire the jewel box era stadiums like Fenway, Wrigley, Shives, Forbes, Crosley, Polo Grounds, etc., etc., all of those came in the early 1900s at the turn of the century. And oh, by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't tell the newbies that I got bios in every single one of those buildings I just mentioned. And they're all available in that banging ass catalog of shows in my vaults of archives. Anyway, back to Coors Field. It opened its door for business on April 26, 1995. The Colorado Rockies had joined the NL fraternity two years earlier, and they played those first two seasons at Mile High Stadium while Coors was being built. The 2023 season marks the 30th year of MLB baseball endeavor. In 1985, the National League was given the okay to expand by two teams. Several cities threw their hat into the ring, including Buffalo, Denver, Miami, Orlando, Tampa, the district. And MLB was looking for two things in particular during this process. Number one, they wanted virgin, unfettered territory. And number two, you had to have the finances for a baseball stadium. So, Denver and the state of Colorado showed that they were serious by immediately forming the Denver Metropolitan Major League Baseball Stadium District in 1989. Uh, voters from the six counties that made up the Denver metropolitan area, they approved a 0.01% sales tax increase for ballpark funding in 1990. And this would eventually provide $168 million, or roughly 78% of the cost of the yard. And I should tell you that $168 million in 1990 has the purchasing power of almost $400 million in the 2023 economy. The remaining $47 million, or $160 million today, would come from the Rockies' owners, which was around 22% of the total cost. In June of 1991, the MLB makes franchise expansion a reality by awarding teams to Denver and Miami. And here we are, folks. October 6, 1992. Where proud civic leaders have broken ground for Coors Field. And there's a buzz in the air as Denver is completely all in on Major League Baseball. While the new crib is going up, fans are packing mile high with football-like crowds that first season. The original plans for Coors called for a seating capacity of 43K. But... After 4.5 million people crashed the Mile High Stadium turnstiles for baseball that season, the club announced that Coors Field would have a seating capacity around 50,000. And I already told you, Coors Field, third oldest NL stadium, which just makes me feel incredibly old. But look, she was also... The first baseball-only park in the National League to go up since Dodger Stadium 34 years before. And it was the National League's first new ballpark since Stade Olympique for the Expos of Montreal. That was back in 1977, and oh yeah, I covered that shithole in the death of the Expos pod. But really, that stadium was built for the 1976 Olympics. It just happened to become a baseball stadium after the Olympics left town, and well, honestly, it eventually murdered the Expos franchise. Coors Field was being built by HLK, Helmuth, Abana, and Casabon. We've covered them a lot here as well. 
By this time in the 90s, they are the premier architecture firm for sports stadiums. They have been lauded for their progressive designs and their ability to use the surrounding environments to connect the city with the baseball experience for the fan. It was HOK that sparked the resurgence in ballpark design and construction when they forever put their stamp on the baseball universe with Oriole Park at Camden Yards in 1992. And that ended this, you know, generic concrete donut monstrosities that had dominated the baseball landscape of the 70s and the 80s. The design of Coors Field recalls the same images of both the Camden. And there are a lot of similarities from the many picks that I have viewed this past week. The mighty red brick structure surrounding her massive skeleton of exposed industrial strength steel. That incorporates an old brick building to enhance the overall atmosphere. Camden Yards is one of the first to open up the outfield for a view of the city skyline before the Hiltons threw their hideous hotel up beyond the grates, uh, forever destroying that charmed city view. But the Coors Field view has remained true since day one, as her design provides a healthy, you know, breathtaking view of the Rocky Mountains in the distance. Hard-laid brick was used for the outer facade. A clock tower was built above the park's interest, uh, entrance. It's massive, and it's beautiful. If you get a chance, you should check out some of those uh, drone flyovers on YouTube. Check that clock out. It's so old-school gangster. I fucking love it. It feels like Shive almost with the Connie Mack Tower looming over the entrance. The outfield walls are asymmetrical in dimensions. And its proximity to the Union Pacific Railroad tracks. And, you know, the sounds emanating from there. You know, it just screams old school baseball. But like with anything HOK did in that era. Old school with the modern amenities. When you enter the yard, you will notice the footprint of the field. It sits below the street level to blend in with all the features of the surrounding neighborhood. Although most of the seats are green, there is an infamous purple row of seats. 20 rows up in the upper deck, and it's called simply the purple row. And it denotes uh, exactly one mile above sea level. And I gotta tell you, folks, push pause, go to YouTube, and search for Barry Bonds hits it into the purple row. I mean, you talk about a shot. Good grief, Charlie Brown. During the construction of Coors, crews found bones on the site. And the last modern stadium show I did, Jacobs Field, I mentioned how they found human teeth there. But... There is a little difference in the bones that, you know, uh, that they found out in cores as the bones matched up to a plant-eating dinosaur, most likely a triceratop, a dinosaur that was uh, common in Colorado during the crustaceous period, which ended about 60 million years ago. A year later, the club and the fans, still reveling in the fascination of such a find, they adopted a fuzzy triceratop mascot that they named Dinger. One of the prominent features of Coors Field is the rock pile uh, seats. It's a 2,300-seat section located in deep, and I do mean deep, center field in the upper deck. And it's about as far from home plate as you can possibly get. But these are some of the cheapest seats in all of baseball. In the first year at the crib, the seats were a dollar. Uh, today, in 2023, kids under 12... And adults over 55, they still pay around four bucks, and everybody else pays eight. So I think in three years, I'll be headed out to Denver. I mean, four dollars to watch MLB games? That's got me written all over it, baby. Ballpark designers, they they knew that balls would be flying through the thin air like crazy at 5,200 feet above sea level, which, of course, is the highest elevated park in the majors. With the low air density of such elevation, designers anticipated balls traveling further than in any other ballpark. To compensate for this, they designed an expansive outfield which stretches out to 424 feet from home plate and right center field. The first game at Camden, I'm sorry, Coors Field was also the first extra innings game 
and it was played on April 26, 1995 versus the New York Mets. Mets leadoff stick, Brett Butler hits Rockies pitcher Bill Swift's first pitch for a single to right field for the very first hit in the Denver Jewel House retro crib. The Mets' Rico Bronia hit the first dong at course off of Swifty in the fourth. Two innings later, Mets, Mets catcher Todd Hunley hit the first grand slam inside the new yard. But the most significant hit in the building that night came with the rowdy Rockies fans screaming for a win in extras and in the 14th inning with the Rocks down 9-8, to Dante Bichette melts a high fastball for a walk-off three-run blast. And I played that clip on the intro, and quite honestly, that blast was a harbinger of things to come with the rise of the Blake Street Bombers, Bichette, Andres Galarraga, Larry Walker, Vinny Castilla. The game took four hours, 49 minutes to complete. And of course, there were many firsts that night. Shortstop Walt Weiss scored the first run in Coors Field history. Roberto Mejia became the first player to be hit by a pitch when he was drilled the sixth. And David Segui of the Mets became the first player to strike out there. When Bill Swift rang him up in the second. The following night, Eric Young had the first stolen base and Big Cat Andre Galarraga hit the first triple at Coors. And I would have never guessed that. The second season at Coors. September 7, 1996. Hideo Nomo achieved what many of us thought impossible at the time when he no-hits the Rocks and Dodgers gear 9-0 for the first no-hitter in the offensive stadium's history. On May 11th that season, it happens again to the Rocks, this time in Miami, Joe Robbie Stadium, when the Florida Marlins get their first no-hitter in franchise history behind Al Leiter in a dominant 11-0 win over Colorado. The last noteworthy first came on April 29, 2007 when shortstop Troy Tulowitzki made the first unassisted triple play in the park's history versus the Braves. He catches a rocket line drive off the bat of Chipper Jones for out number one. Then he tags Kelly Johnson out at second and caught Edgar Renneria near second after he had run on the pitch and couldn't get back to the base on top. In 1993, Don Baylor was hired as the club's manager. And he was fantastic, leading the Rockies to the postseason in just three years, which is faster than any previous expansion club in modern baseball history. So, the first two years of Mile High, Baylor's boys, they go 67-95, and 53-64 in the strike short 94th season. The first year of Coors Field, the Rocks go 77-67 to earn an NL wildcard spot, and Baylor was awarded the National League Manager of the Year. The Rockies matched up with Atlanta in the NLDS. They lost the first two games at home with crushing ninth inning collapses in both games. They won game three, but they would eventually get choked out three games to one, and that would be the last postseason game of Coors until 2007. During the 2007 season, the Rockies are on the march to the Fall Classic. They sweep the Phillies in the NLDS. In the series clinching third game, Jeff Baker singles in the eventual winning run in the eighth and closer Manny Corpus earned his third save in as many games to propel Colorado to the NLCS to face the Arizona Diamondbacks. They would uh, sweep out the Snakes as well with game three and four of the championship being played at Coors. In Game 3, before a rambunctious, sold-out crowd, the Rockies get the W on the strength of a Yorville, uh, I'm sorry, a Yorville Torrealba three-run dong in the sixth. In the series clincher, with the crib packed to the gills again, the Rocks poured on the Snakes with a six-run fourth inning. Now, the Diamondbacks would score three runs in the top of the eighth, but the explosive fourth inning returns would hold up as the Rocks beat the Snakes 6-4, to four. And now they're headed to the World Series for the first time in their very short history. Unfortunately, that storybook run would evaporate into the Denver's thin air as the Fall Classic would see them match up versus the battle-tested and resolute Boston Red Sox. 
the Sox quickly took a commanding two games to zero lead at Benway before heading to Denver for game three on October 27, 2007. And the temperature when the game started was a brisk 45 degrees. Around 50,000 diehard Rocky fans showed up looking for a miracle. But the Red Hot Sox destroyed the Rockies 10-5 to to take the driver's seat with a three games to none advantage. So, with their backs against the wall, the Rocks take the field the next night looking to stave off elimination. Coors Field is again packed with a purple and black clad sea of humanity. This time, it's a balmy 68-degree night in Denver. Fans are not wearing uh, goose-down jackets, scarves, and mittens. The stadium is on fire, and the Rocks faithful are in a frenzy before the game. Unfortunately, uh, the crowd is taken out early. When Boston takes an early 3-0 lead, that they would hold even, uh, that they would hold over the Rocks until they finally scored in the bottom of the seventh run. In the top of the eighth, the Red Sox tackled some Geico with an insurance run. In the bottom half of the eighth, and with the crowd and team on literal life support, Garrett Atkins hits a two-run shot to bring Colorado within a run, and the terrified Rockies fans have found their second win. They begin to believe, and Coors begins to rattle from the acoustics coming off the crowd. The fans begin to get louder, louder. Everyone in the building is on their feet in the bottom of the ninth. But there would be no joy in Mudville that day or in the beautiful mountain city called Denver as Red Sox closer Jonathan Pabelbon easily dispatches the Rockies lineup in order for his fourth save in the World Series. And as Pabelbon, Poppy, Pedroia, and that whole team of amazing players of the 2007 Red Sox are celebrating their second world title in three years out there on the pitcher's mound at Coors Field. The 50,041 fans watched the celebration in horror and shock as they quietly walked out of the stadium for the last time that year. And from that very first crazy 14-inning game versus the Mets, Coors Field has rightfully earned her reputation as a hitter-friendly crib. After the first Dodgers series ever played there, Hall of Fame play-by-play announcer Vince Scully quipped, that any hitting record set in Colorado should come with an asterisk. Early on, Coors was coined with the moniker Coors Canaveral in reference to the NASA launching site in Florida. The reputation was solidified in 1999 when the Rockies belted an MLB record 303 home runs as a team in their home park. The 1961 California, I'm sorry, I don't think that is in their home park. I think that's just overall. So it's 303 home runs overall as a team. The 1961 California Angels had previously held the mark with 248 in their very first year of existence at the Wrigley Field of L.A. In the first year of Coors Field, the Rockies came up seven dogs short of that Angels record, and they lost seven home games that year to the player strike which forced a late start to the 1995 season. A year later, 1996, the Rocks played a full season at Coors for the first time. And, you know, they would literally uh, clobber 20, 271 home runs as a unit. They would eventually smash that with the 303-team dogs I told you about during that 1999 campaign. Alan Nathan... A renowned physicist proved in the early 2000s that baseballs in general travel at least 5% further in the highly elevated crib compared to, say, Fenway Park. And based on his analysis, the ball travels, uh, the ball that travels 380 feet in Fenway will travel 400 feet in Denver. After several years of prodigious home run totals, as well as highly elevated team ERAs, the Rockies installed a humidor to help bring this production back to a lower atmosphere. And the idea is credited to former Rocks employee, Tony Conwell, that noticed his boots tried faster at a high altitude, and he theorized that baseballs 
probably do the same thing. He began to think, if baseballs had more moisture content, they might not travel as far as a dried out baseball. Hey, pretty smart kid here. So, he sticks a couple baseballs in a humidor overnight. The next day, he walks to the third deck concourse and he begins dropping humidor balls versus regular game day balls from the third deck to the bottom level. And sure enough, there was no doubt that the dried balls bounced off the concrete much higher than the moistened baseballs. Conwell and the Rockies presented the scientific data to Major League Baseball, and the league gave the Rockies permission to install a giant $18,000 humidor to store their game balls. And the numbers show that the humidors do in fact curtail offensive numbers for the most part, especially in the home run department. Team home runs fell from 268 in 2001 to 185 in 2007, which was 10th most in the majors that year. So, runs, they also dropped from 13.4 combined a game in 2001 to around 10.6 in 2007. So, it has had an impact as the humidor keeps baseballs from drying out and shrinking. It is set at 40% humidity to compensate for the low density of moisture in the Mile High City. Rawlings, the official manufacturer of MLB baseballs, they suggest humidity of about 50% and 70 degree temperatures. The longest measured blast in the history of Coors Field came off the bat of Hall of Famer Mike Piazza on September 26, 1997 while playing for the Dodgers, a 496-foot dong that barely outdistanced Larry Walker's 494-footer as well as Giancarlo Stanton's blast at the same distance that left the building on August 7, 2012. And while the home run totals have fallen considerably since the stadium's early years, it still remains hitter-friendly. From 2012 to 2017, the Rockies led all of baseball with runs scored at home. In fact, two of the highest scoring games in the history of baseball occurred at Coors. May 19, 1999, the Rockies and the Reds engage in a 36-run slugfest combined the Reds led 6-4 to four after 1. The Rockies tied up in the 2nd at 6. The Reds, you know, they get real belligerent. Then they score 17 runs between the 4th and the 7th innings. Uh, Reds first baseman, brand new hitting coach for the New York Yankees, the mayor, Sean Casey. He went 4-4 four for four with 3 walks and 5 runs scored. His teammate, Jeffrey Hammonds, hit 3 home runs in that game. The Rockies scored 12 runs that day, which... Now, look, 99.9% of the time, that should surely be enough to win. Uh, unfortunately, the Red Legs, well, they scored 24. <laughs> Nine years later, the Rocks and Fish, they celebrate Independence Day with a baseball shootout. But this time, Colorado comes out on top. July 4, 2008, the two teams combined for 43 hits, 35 runs, the first four Rocky hitters in the lineup, they go 16 for 22 with five home runs and 13 runs scored. The Rockies came to bat in the bottom of the ninth, trailing 17 to 16 before pushing across two runs to walk it off. As you can imagine, many a slugger has dropped dong at Coors Field. Todd Helton has the most home runs at the park with 227. Barry Bonds and his 26 home runs hit there. It's the most by an opposing player. The longest game in course history was actually not a high-scoring affair. It was a 4-3 victory over the San Francisco Giants. That lasted until the 15th inning, and it took 5 hours and 24 minutes to compete. If the cycle is your thing, you're more apt to see when a course field over any other ballpark in baseball. And all there have been 18 and counting since he opened her turnstiles in 1995. Nine by the Rockies, nine by opponents. And this ties course for the record, with the most cycles in its history, along with Fenway Park. Which, folks, that was opened in 1912, a whole 81 years before course field went up, baby. So if you want to go see a fucking... Uh, 
you know, uh, a cycle, this is where you should go. The very first one was on May 18th, 1996, by Cards first friend John Mabry, when he became the 11th major league to hit a natural cycle in order. Single, double, triple, and home run. Two years after Coors opened, it played host to the All-Star Game on July 7th, 1998. The AL pounded the NL 13-8 in a game that saw 31 hits between the two teams. Three home runs were hit in that game, including Orioles second baseman Roberto Alomar with a solo shot that cemented the AL's lead and earned him All-Star MVP honors. Okay, folks. I think this is where I'm going to take a break. Let me get through my, you know, my thoughts together, plot my course, bring this train back to Terrapin Station. I'll see you freaks on the other side of the break. BRBC, man, don't go anywhere. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tech, Gage Geek, executive producer of Backwards K Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish board. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun old base spice. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish for fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There is also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com you're not an MVP candidate, but I know I think Nolan will be. Does it bother you guys when you put up the numbers you do that people around the country will say, yeah, but they do play in Colorado? It does. Uh, and it's hard for me to come back and and, and defend that. Um, but I'll try. Here we go. Um, Colorado is an, a very offensive park, uh, but mostly I believe it's in terms of batting average. You know, It's a really big outfield. The outfielders are mm-hmm. further apart. You know, the infield's relatively fast. There's some ground ball hits to be had. But there are lots of parks like that in the big leagues that have even smaller fences, you know. So it's it's not the easiest place to hit home runs. Um, you know, our, our gaps are 390. It's not like... Uh, well, they do that, though, because of uh, the thin air out there and because right. the balls do fly. So they made it a bigger outfield. And there's no question the ball flies. But, you know, watching, you know, the Astros and where they play, 
I mean, you know, that outfield fence looks like a little league fence, especially right. when Aaron Judge is running into it. Right. I think statistically, Houston is better for home runs than, mm. than Coors Field is. Um, but there's a lot of other uh, factors that make it difficult to play at elevation. Um, you know, you, you have less oxygen in the air. You're recovering about 10% worse than everybody in the league, which over the course of a six-month season is going to wear you down. Uh, it's more difficult to play at that atmosphere and then go on the road and play at sea level. Look like balls do things that are just a little bit different. <laughs> Taking a look at the high, high octane offenses uh, that have gone on in Coors Field, the history of the stadium itself, third oldest National League stadium, which that just still it blows me away. Now, quick recap: the city of Denver, Colorado, was awarded a baseball franchise, along with the city of Miami, in 1992. In 1993, the Rocks are playing baseball in the NFL Broncos house at Mile High Stadium. And the fans are packing that crib almost every game. Two years later, Coors Field is completed, and the team is very competitive for a third-year expansion club. They are managed by Don Baylor, and their offense is led by the original Blake Street Bombers, the quartet of sluggers, and Dante Bichette, Big Cat, Andres Galarraga, Vinny Castilla, and Larry Walker. And because of our mountain time zone locations, uh, Coors has had some interesting moments. For example, the coldest game in baseball history was played there April 23rd, 2013. And at 6 a.m., the grounds crew had cleared several inches of snow off the field. By game time, the field was clear, but the mercury sat at 23 degrees. The Braves beat Colorado that day 4-3 before 19,124 crazy-ass seamheads. On July 9, 2005, 10 years after the inaugural opening day, 847 games later, Coors Field finally saw... A one to nothing game. Before that day, there had been only three two to nothing games. There have been eight more one nothing games since then. The last one coming on June twelfth, two thousand and ten. Although these low scoring affairs are rare in cores, the Rockies have gone six and three in the nine one zero games that have been played in cores. The ballpark has seen notable no- moments like Ichiro smashing his three thousandth hit. A triple on August 7, 2016 while playing for the pitch. And I have sounded that moment in our Ichiro bio in the collection. Two Rockies have had their numbers retired. Todd Helton, who played for Colorado from 1997 to 2013. He had his number 17 retired. And Hall of Fame outfielder Larry Walker and his 33. And I'm of the opinion that Todd Helton should be a Hall of Famer as well. On July 3rd, 2015, Coors Field hosted its first concert when the Zac Brown Band came to town. It's hosted several soccer games. On February 20th, 2016, a hockey rink was set up so that the University of Denver and Colorado College could resume their 66th annual robbery game. A crowd of over 35,000 showed up that day to watch Denver University win 4-1. And a week later, the NHL holds its annual Winter Classic there as the Detroit Red Wings beat the Colorado Avalanche 5-3. Coors Field is sure to continue as a focal point for Denver Seamheads in the years to come. The ballpark is located in the Lotto part of Denver, which... I don't know, think like Soho in New York City if you've ever been there. It is a 
rejuvenated uh, area that has, you know, plenty of art galleries, small antiquity shops, other shops, you know, fine eateries, and, you know, all this, the stadium. So, you know, there's a lot of excitement in the surrounding area. Coors Field brings even more excitement as the hometown guys continue to play for that first World Series chip. And I think that's where I'm going to end it this week, folks. But before I bounce like a bad check, let's rehash this magnificent building and see if I can throw you some facts that I may have missed. Coors Field is located at 2001 Blake Street, Denver, Colorado. That's 39 degrees longitude, 45 feet, 22 inches north. And 104 degrees latitude, 59 feet, 39 inches west. From 1995 to 1998, she had an attendance capacity of 50,200. 1999 and 2000 was pushed up to 50,381. From 2001 to 2010, it rose to 50,445. In 2011, capacity was pushed even higher to 50,490. From 2012 to 2017, she shrank by about 100 seats to about 50,390. And in 2018 to today, uh, it has shed more than 3,000 seats. It holds firm at 46,897 currently, which you could really push up to around 50,144 with standing room only. The record attendance for a Rockies game is 50,200. And in comparison to all the band box stadiums in the MLB today, Coors Field is big. I mean, really fucking big. The left field wall is 347 feet from home plate or 106 meters for my international listeners. Left center field power alleys is 390 feet or 119 meters. Center field is 416 feet away from the dish. That's 126 meters. The right center field gap is 375 feet away, which, you know, it isn't too bad. That's 114 meters. And down the right field line is 350 feet or 170 meters. And the backstop sits 56 feet behind home plate. It's Kentucky bluegrass perennial ryegrass hybrid playing surface. The architects were the famous HOK Sports Company, which is now called Populous. Again, I told you, the Rocks played at Maha Stadium for two years while Coors was under construction, and she is now the third oldest National League stadium. The row of purple seats in the upper deck sits 5,280 feet, or 1.61 kilometers above sea level, and it is simply called the Purple Row. The playing field itself is 80 feet lower at 5,200 feet above sea level. And I told you about the mascot Dinger, a purple triceratop as an ode to the fragments of dinosaur bones construction workers found while excavating the site. You can meet Dinger at every game. He is available for picks and autographs at the top of the third inning on the main court concourse right below the infamous rock pile out in center field. The Rockies, they hold the Major League Baseball record for highest single-season attendance when 4,483,350 ravenous fans blitzed the turnstiles in 1993, their inaugural season when they played in Mile High Stadium. The Rockies also have the seventh highest attendance total in baseball history when 3,015,880 fans attended a baseball game during the 2018 season out of course. The Rockies have never won the NL West, but they have reached the postseason with wild wildcard bursts in 1995, 2007, 2009, 2017, and 2018. Their 92-70 and 70 record in 2009 is the best team record in franchise history. And it has a state-of-the-art heating system for the field with over 45 miles or 72.45 kilometers of cable that run underneath the playing surface to help melt early spring and fall snow as well as keep the grass green during the dry summers. Elevation does, uh, it does have an impact on the pitching as well. Curveballs do not quite bite the way they do in other cities. Fastballs 
you know, they get a, you know, they get a little more hot, so they get three to six more miles per hour because of the decrease in air resistance. The footprint of the playing field covers 2.66 acres of land, which is more than the average ballpark, uh, which sits around 2.49 acres. And last but not least, Coors Field was made with 1.4 million bricks, each one engraved with the words Coors Field engraved on them. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, team heads of all ages, this is the story of Coorsfield. I hope you enjoyed listening to this story as much as I enjoyed telling it, and I promise to try to be better next week. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your shows, or you can swing on over to my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to hear any of the shows in my expanding wealth of archives. And, man, that stadium wing of our collection is getting pretty fucking stout. Uh, I love interacting with you guys. So if you want to leave me a message, you can go to uh, the show's email address. Hit me up at backwardskpod at gmail.com. The show... Twitter handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal line is at jrobbie1. That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E and the number one. The YouTube channel was backwards K-Pod. But, you know, look, if you really want to hunt me down, I ain't hard to find. You know, I'm usually hanging out with all the C-Meds on the private Facebook group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer those questions. Come on in and go crazy, folks. Go crazy. I hope you enjoy the All-Star Game festivities that are, you know, set to pop off. The Home Run Derby was very entertaining. I don't care that my boy Rockstar didn't win, but, uh, you know, he put on a show last night. And honestly, I was like a proud papa watching his young and amazing astound. I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. No Patreon, no Twitch. No pay-to-play horse shit. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and do the work. I'll be coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my boy Adley Rockstar, baby. It's such a great feeling to have my legit favorite player in the game play on my favorite team again. It's been a while since that's been the case. So with the Coors Field Show in the books, with a backwards K next to it. I turn my attention to our baseball hydra and I chop <laughs> the head off that beast only to see two baseball topics appear in its place. Next week. Oh man, I'm so pumped up. One of my personal all-time heroes. The human vacuum cleaner, Hoover, number five, Mr. Oriel. I'm doing the great Brooks Robinson next week. I can't wait to do my due diligence and learn everything I can about Brooksy. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod. Where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Please listen, share, download, write a review, hand out some stars. All the things I ask you to do, which you never do. That was standing. I love you guys. Thanks for joining me in the dojo this week. I'll be back next week. Same bat time. Same bat channel. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch like a bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me last year in our one-on-one smart session in the dojo, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace.